Chapter One of Recollections of Imperial Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recollections of Imperial Russia by Mariel Buchanan. Chapter One First Impressions it seems useless and futile to attempt to write another book about russia when so many hundreds have already been written and when in spite of all their quantity and length her secrets still remain unconquerable and unsolved radiant beauty and stark hideous ugliness gladness and sorrow greatness and tragedy and brutal savage cruelty over them all she draws a veil of impenetrable mystery smiling with soft inscrutable eyes when people impatiently misjudge and condemn her i myself cannot even attempt to understand far less explain her wayward inconsistence all that i can do is to try very feebly and haltingly to paint in words all those different pictures of her that i have known and loved and read of glowing and jewel-coloured the pageantries of her past like the splendid golden mosaics in her glorious churches and dark and sad and terrible the realities of her tragic present her history and legends are full of colour and romance and mysticism mingled always with crime and unspeakable brutality her literature is great and wonderful but almost morbid in its utter hopelessness her music even in its turbulent gaiety never loses its haunting sadness her climate is grim and desolating and depressing and always in everything she will remain divided from us by her absolute dissimilarity and oppositeness in one of claude annette's russian novels the heroine exclaims êtes-vous sûr que l'angleterre soit partie du monde que nous habitons nous les russes ici on ne comprend rien n'a rien chez eux on sait à l'avance tout surtout and then with true russian inconsistency she adds c'est repoussant mais comme ça le monde vida those words mark very clearly the division there is the fundamental difference which so many people cannot realize it is almost impossible for us with our insular love of order and regularity and of life laid down in cut-and-dried rules to understand this obscure confused impulsiveness and uncertainty in all things and puzzled and impatient we pass judgment without pausing to consider the difference of nature climate and temperament that will always leave russia an enigma and a mystery unsolved and incomprehensible the very first impression i had was one that is perhaps not excessively poetical but i think it must always have forced itself with some intensity on any traveller getting out of the train at one of the russian frontier stations it was in fact impossible not to notice it since it was a smell that met one as soon as one let down the carriage window and i don't think there is any other smell in all the world quite like it so overpowering and all-pervading was it that one thought despairingly that one would never get used to it but gradually it became so much part of one's life that one scarcely noticed it and now i think of it almost with regret because it is so individual to russia that it has become bound up with all my memories of her and yet it was not a smell of any one thing in particular and though the russian maujik took it with him wherever he went it was not really because he himself was unclean as he invariably went to the public baths once a week boiled himself in steam and had himself beaten with birch rods afterwards by way of a rather drastic massage no it was not actually a smell of dirt it was made up i think of high leather boots of sheepskin coats 
of cigarette smoke of cabbage soup and of sunflower oil which was extensively used for cooking the other vivid memory i retain of our arrival at Birbalen is the picture of the tartar waiter who served us in the imperial waiting-rooms which were always opened for an ambassador he was a minute little man with a totally bald head and a yellow weazened face that was just like a gnome's he spoke an almost incomprehensible mixture of english french german and russian and he never walked but always ran with small quick trotting steps and flying coat-tails he had been at the station for an uncountable number of years he was there as usual the last time we passed through verbalen in the autumn of nineteen thirteen smiling bowing scraping fussing and always glad to see one poor little yellow-faced man i have often wondered what became of him when the great cataclysms of war and revolution swept away all the old landmarks of our arrival in st petersburg i can actually remember very little except that it was a hopelessly grey day of early december and that there seemed no light or colour anywhere the broad spaciousness of the streets somehow intensified this general sense of magnificent dreariness an early snowfall had melted and was turning to yellow slush the river looked dark and sullen with pieces of half-frozen ice floating slowly down towards the sea the big red building of the embassy at the corner of the quay and the suvorov square struck one at first as being more like a barracks than a residence and it seemed impossible that one could ever grow to look on it as a home that winter of nineteen ten happened to be a very late one and for days the same bleak sky stretched above the same bleak streets cold and grim and utterly cheerless then at last the real snow came and everything was changed the pieces of ice floating down the river from the ladoga lake thickened got jammed together froze into white solid immobility here and there paths were smoothed and cleared from one shore to another by the winter palace where the old wooden bridge of boats had to be swung back every winter and where the big new bridge was still in course of construction a tram-line was laid down on the ice and a little electric car spun across the fastness of the imprisoned river the dull opaque greyness of the sky lightened a pale sunshine filtered through and struck gleaming fire on the gold spire of the cathedral of st peter and paul sledges took the place of the rattling noisy cabs and carts a hush of peace and stillness settled over the town broken only by the occasional hoot of motors the clang of the tram-bells the hoarse warning shouts of the coachmen mauzhiks in white aprons and brown fur caps swept the snow in the streets cartloads of it were thrown over into the neva the hard frozen surface of the pavements was strewn with sand and ashes and slowly all the time the clouds lifted a deep turquoise blue sky laughed above a new white world the yellow and red and pink stucco houses struck gay garish notes of colour spires and domes shone with incredible brilliance the frozen river under its covering of snow shimmered in a radiance that hurt one's eyes vaguely i can detach certain individual pictures from the bewildering chaos of memories and i think almost one of the clearest of these is our coachman ivan he was an enormous man with a square black beard and slanting dark eyes his long sapphire-blue coat shaped like a dressing-gown was tied round the waist lined with fur and padded out like a balloon it was the absolute duty of a russian coachman to be as fat as possible and in addition to have his coat filled out so as to add in every conceivable way to his size 
apart from the fact of its being necessary for the man's own sake the original idea of this was i think that in the little open one-horse sleighs people sheltered themselves behind their coachman's back and the broader that back was the more protection they got from the icy wind in winter ivan wore a blue velvet three-cornered cap with gold braid and fur round it and a little cockade of red white and blue in front and in summer a queer little top hat that was very low and squat and always looked rather as if it had been sat on he also had three broad gold stripes down the back of his coat these being the insignia of an ambassador's coachman a minister's having two stripes and a secretary's only one ivan drove with both arms stretched stiffly out in front of him the bright blue reins wound round his fur-gloved hands and he would always when nearing his destination urge on the two long-tailed horses to a terrific pace and then throwing himself backwards would bring them to an abrupt standstill during which process they naturally very nearly sat down he was filled also with the absolute and immovable conviction that everything must make way for an ambassador's carriage and he would accordingly drive straight through the traffic with a hoarse shout to trams motors and carts to leave the road clear which needless to say they were not always obliging enough to do he never seemed to mind how long one kept him waiting but would sit for hours in cold or heat rain or snow sometimes fast asleep and sometimes smoking a short clay pipe which he would stuff hastily inside his coat as soon as one appeared but i never saw him knock out the ashes and i often wondered what happened to a fully lighted pipe in the padded warmth of his voluminous clothes several times he came out dead drunk and was given notice but he inevitably came the next day asking to be forgiven and swearing with tears in his eyes that it should never happen again and somehow he was always believed and taken back in a russian household there were always a countless number of servants and ours though not purely russian seemed to be no exception for beside the chasseur the porter the butler and footman the chef and sous-chef ivan the chauffeur and the housemaids there were an indefinite number of mauzhiks who did everybody else's work as well as their own i don't know how many there were in the kitchen and stables but besides the big silent mauzhik whose sole duty it was to carry logs of wood from room to room i can well remember the two little gnome-like brothers who flitted about the house beating carpets cleaning windows and generally doing odd jobs they were both tiny stunted men with thick curly hair and i was never quite sure which was which but i believe the eldest one was called fyodor and i know that he remained on with us during the war and long after his brother had been called to the front one of them had a wife a hopelessly plain pale-faced slip of a woman who seemed to be a sort of general scrub charwoman and underhousemaid for a long time it didn't seem quite clear to which brother she really belonged and i well remember my poor mother's horror when she discovered that they all three slept in the same room eventually however she was identified as the younger brother's wife and when he was called to the front i believe she went back to her village but the most important member of the household and the one who ruled all the others with a rod of iron was william the chasseur william's special business in life was to look after my father and to accompany him everywhere armed with a huge sword with which i assume he was expected to defend him against the assaults of possible enemies 
but he seemed to add to this particular duty the responsibility and care of the whole house and family it was william who drew up the list of visits that had to be paid every afternoon it was william who knew where everybody lived and who knew all the at-home days of ambassadresses ministers wives and court ladies by heart it was william who always looked after our coats and overshoes and would not allow anybody else to touch them it was he who when we went to the ballet led the way to our box or when we went shopping told us which shops to go to or when we travelled arranged our journey and took our tickets and looked after our luggage and when we went out always came with us on the box of the carriage or the motor and was furious and terribly hurt if he was left behind he was by birth a let and before the war we always spoke to him in german but from the day the war was declared he firmly refused to speak another german word and we then discovered that he spoke perfect and fluent english william wore a neat dark green uniform with gold epaulets and on ordinary occasions a military cap or a helmet with dark green plumes rather like a bersaglieri but if we were going to some official function or audience he would exchange this for a cocked hat with white feathers in which he looked nothing less than a field marshal he shared both ivan's and the chauffeur's view that everything must give way to an ambassador's carriage and the language he used when sometimes a cart impeded our progress sounded formidable and volcanic though luckily we did not always understand it in his way he was most distinctly an autocrat and would insist with a wooden and impassive face on what he considered to be the right thing for instance if after a long round of visits my mother suggested that we could go home william would often say severely it is countess so-and-so's at-home day and your excellency has not yet been to her wearily my mother would reply that countess so-and-so could be really left till next week but william remained entirely adamant i think it would be better to go to her to-day he would say and we generally found that in the end we had to give in to him or sometimes calling on some humble person whom william i am afraid he was not quite devoid of snobbishness considered not worthy of the attention he would salute respectfully when my mother told him to be sure and ask whether madame so-and-so were at home disappear into the house and coming out again in a few minutes would announce with a perfectly expressionless face that madame so-and-so was out and that he had left cards we knew of course that he had never inquired at all but it was useless to argue with him and so as usual we let him have his own way very uncertain and confused are all these old memories of mine and i find i cannot arrange them in any order or sequence cannot tell when and how i first saw st isaac's great golden dome or the huge red building of the winter palace or the cossacks riding past with long lances slanting against a still grey sky or the first ballet in the great blue and white opera house or the first religious ceremony in the kazan cathedral certainly the bigness of everything was enormously impressive indeed almost overwhelming and perhaps it was this very immensity that made it so difficult for one to feel at home in a city that seemed in some strange way impregnated with the bigness the genius and the cruelty of the man who first dreamed of this northern capital which was to be the window towards europe of his huge uncivilized empire always too even on the most sunny days there was a sense of tragedy a shadow that was indefinite and intangible but that seemed to creep up behind one like some evil haunting spirit stretching out a claw-like threatening hand over the golden domes the gay stucco houses and the great palaces along the quays 
it had often been said that a curse lay over petersburg and the old belief was that the neva would one day rise and swallow the town leaving only the spire of st peter and paul sticking out of the waste of grey waters there were some people even who pretended that on still evenings they had seen the head of some gargantuan frightful monster lift itself out of the sullen waters and look with evil gloating eyes on the town it would one day devour countless times in history the neva had risen flooding the quays submerging the lower quarters of the town sweeping away the wooden houses and rendering thousands homeless there are many old pictures and prints of petersburg with the streets turned into canals and people going about in boats and strange and sometimes gruesome stories are told of the floods that at various times threatened to destroy the town once when the winter palace was in danger a cow and two calves were discovered in the mauzhik's quarters on the top floor another time so great was the army of rats seeking refuge from the rising water that the empress catherine herself went round the palace placing traps to catch them it was during one of these floods too that the beautiful helena tarakanov who was said to be the daughter of the empress elizabeth was drowned in her cell in the fortress where for twelve years catherine's fear and jealousy had held her prisoner once the spoilt beauty of the florentine court charles radziwill who schemed to be king of poland sought her hand in marriage but catherine divining so the story goes his intriguing ambition sent alexis orloff with three ships to the coast of italy and alexis faithful to the mother's orders ingratiated himself in florentine society lured the unfortunate girl on board his flagship and brought her back to petersburg to be shut in the lowest cell of the fortress and left there till at last the waters of the neva topped the small open loophole and totally submerged the wretched cell while the jailers turned a deaf ear to the prisoner's cries and entreaties to be saved frequently during the years we were in russia if the wind blew up from the sea the smooth flowing river would be turned into a heaving mass of yellow waters lashing themselves against the bridges and parapets and rising with an alarming velocity while with every inch they rose the cannons from the fortress boomed a warning to those living in the low-lying quarters on the islands i remember one night especially when it seemed that the monster hiding in the waters would once more rise and devour the town it was during the winter months and the river was chained in a frozen mass of ice but a gale of wind had been blowing all day from the sea added to a blinding snowstorm which made it almost impossible to go out during the night the gale became a hurricane and under their frozen imprisoning fastness the waters rose lifting the ice with them and in their mighty volume and strength breaking the thick blocks asunder all night long the cannons thundered the church bells pealed the mad wind howled up the desert of snow and ice in the gulf of finland and inch by inch the heaving cracking mass of the river rose like a huge white threatening animal straining at its leash then just when the swaying ice-blocks seemed as if they would top the stone parapets of the quay the wind changed and slowly the turbulent waters sank back into their prison and the danger was over though already on the petersburg skya side many of the low wooden houses had been inundated and everywhere the cellars and basements were flooded but always the menace of the river was there and those who remembered the stories of the bygone floods would shake their heads and recall the old legend of the enormous walnut tree that in long ago days grew on the square between the fortress of peter and paul and the little wooden cathedral of the trinity 
on its trunk it bore the marks of all the different floods and it was said that before petersburg had been built and this tree stood solitary and lonely in the desolation of marsh and swamp the river one day had risen so high as to submerge even its topmost branches and when against his subjects wishes peter began to build his new capital the whisper was spread about that one day the river would again rise to the height of the walnut tree and that then petersburg would be destroyed hearing these stories the tsar who feared neither god nor man had the tree cut down and those who had circulated the legend cruelly punished and yet with all his genius all his power all his absolute autocracy peter could not make his subjects love the town he forced them to build the damp evil-smelling marshes all round the miasmas of the swamps from which hundreds died of malignant fever the ever-present danger of floods made the nobles over and over again seek flight to their beloved moscow only to be followed bound and brought back by the pitiless order of the giant who ruled them till at last with the passing of years petersburg was recognized as the capital of russia in the dim golden dusk of the cathedral of st peter and paul the body of the great emperor rests in peace but always it seemed to me that his spirit with its strange mingling of incredible genius warm-hearted generosity and savage cruelty still brooded over the city he had so loved looking up at the marvellous equestrian statue by falconet where peter dominates the neva i have almost fancied that the horse brought back on its haunches was checked only for a moment in its furious gallop towards eternity that the wind still swayed in the folds of the emperor's cloak that the outstretched arm moved in a proud sweeping gesture as if it said this town is mine and i hold it still on frosty mornings when the trees in the alexander garden were a fairyland of silver tracery and the great dome of st isaac swam in a soft pink haze on still cold nights all blue and white beneath the faint chill stars on summer evenings magic in dim opal-coloured loveliness always that statue seemed to stand out vivid and alive commanding and threatening with outflung arm and the thunder of trampling hoofs End of chapter 1